All right, thank you for that song. Now, this morning, we are continuing in our series, Align, a church aligned with God's will. And, and this morning, we're in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. So if you'll turn with me uh, your copy of God's Word, whether you got that on your iPad or iPhone or Android device, or maybe you brought a physical copy with you here this morning. Um, I would encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 2 with me. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 29 this morning. 18 through 29, the church at Thyatira. Um, so hopefully you found your place by now. Um, we're going to be answering or looking at the idea that, that a church that is aligned with God's will does not allow false teachers and idolaters to influence the church. And so keep that in mind as we as we walk through this text this morning. Beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." As with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity for us to gather together to, to worship you, Lord, in song and, and through now the preached word, God. As we walk through this text this morning, Help us to take these ideas that we look at, that, that you give us through your holy word and apply them to our lives so that it might change us, so that it might change our church, and so that it might provide us with hope and encouragement as well. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Well, De Malpassant's narrative, a, a Parisian affair, begins with this with this pretty woman, she is living in the country and, and she dreams of Paris while sleeping next to her snoring husband at home. She's never known a thing beyond the monotony of the, the regularly performed duties. It, is, it was these duties, you know, washing the dishes and washing the clothes and, and cleaning the house and, and doing the laundry and, and taking care of the kids. These things were supposed to lead to a happy marriage. But she wants more. She wants more. Paris was a, a dream world uh, of escape for her. It was, it was the city of lights. It represented the height of, of luxury and, and licentiousness. 
Her view of Paris has been cultivated by a a steady diet of of newspaper articles. And and reading about Paris has has created in her mind this this model of a very different kind of man than her white-collar, small-town, conservative husband. Instead, she dreamed of a man who, who the headlines shone like, like this, this brilliant comet in the, the darkness of her somber sky. She, she pictured the, the madly exciting lives that, that these men must lead, moving from, from one den of vice to, to the other, indulging in this never-ending and extraordinary acts of pleasure. It seemed that to her behind all of the facades of, of those houses that, that line the boulevards there in Paris, the secret world existed, a world that, that she dreamed of, that, that she wanted access to. Now this woman is, is no longer able to, to, to resist the lure of the city. She is gripped by this 19th century version of, of the fear of missing out. She concocts this excuse with her husband and with her family of of why she must travel to Paris. And once she arrives, she she searches over the streets looking for the promises that the newspaper had, had held out to her. And her search proves fruitless. Nowhere could she discover the, the dens of iniquity about which she had, had dreamed. And with her dreams fading quickly, she by chance happens upon this aging celebrity writer in one of the new department stores there in Paris. And, and throwing aside her, her normal reserve, she aggressively flirts with him. The writer, he then takes her on this tour of the sights of, of Paris. And, and at the theater that night, she was seen by everyone as she is sitting in the front row of the balcony. And as the inter- entertainment ends, he, he bids her good night. But, but she did not want the night to end. She was determined to cross over into the landscape of adultery, and she offers to accompany this man home. After an awkward and, and unsatisfying encounter, the woman lies awake in the writer's bed wondering, what have I done? She spends the night awake staring at this man as his unattractive features are now prominent to her. Like her husband, he, he snores and, and he snorts throughout the night. And, and as she continues there, she, she continues to stare, repulsed as this man's saliva drivels down his cheek. She flees home as though, you know, something inside of her had now been been swept away through the mud, down the gutter, and finally into the sewer had gone all the refuse of her overexcited imagination. And returning home, she runs into her room and she begins to cry. That's the picture that Day Malpassant paints for us of the Parisian affair. It is an unsatisfying encounter. She had, she had built this up in her mind as if it was going to, to satisfy her and give her everything that she has ever wanted. And once she's there, it's unsatisfying. And just as an affair cannot and does not satisfy the desires of, of our heart, seeking after other gods, participating in immorality cannot and does not satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts either. And while many of us know this by experience, there are times when, when we allow ourselves to be seduced by the intoxicating promises that the world holds out to us. You know, why do we do this? Why are we so blind to this? Why are we so irrational? Well, the Bible's answer is that, that the human's heart is an idol factory. 
An idol can be anything that allows us to take, to, or anything that, that we allow to take the place of God in our lives. It is those things that we give the most weight to in our lives, or we think that is necessary for happiness and fulfillment in life. Ultimately, an idol is, is anything that stands between us and God. It is, hinders our relationship with him because we are giving it our love, we are giving it our affections, we are giving it our worship instead of God. One author helpfully puts it this way. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know that I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. And as we've, we've already seen, this, this, this section of Scripture here, the, the letters to the, to the seven churches of, of Revelation that, that Jesus is, is writing to, these people are, are pagans who, who worshipped all kinds of gods. They had sex gods and work gods and war gods and money gods and, and nation gods. They deified just about anything, whatever it is that they thought in their heart of hearts would give them what they felt like would satisfy them. They made that into a deity and they began to worship it, offering sacrifices to that thing in hopes that it would return to them what they felt like they actually needed. And just as the pagans did, you know, we don't, we don't often go out and, and build these, these shrines. We don't, we don't go and, and build these elaborate temples like, like the church that we looked at last week in, in Pergamum did. But we do build idols in our lives. And we can make just about anything into an idol. Our children, our family, our work, our success, our church involvement, our home maintenance, our family obligations, or anything else that we find more joy and peace and acceptance or worth in other than God. When we allow anything other than God to rule us, what we are actually doing is we are submitting to an idol. And if we're all honest with ourselves, we all have them. You know, some of us, we have idols that are, that are larger than, than others. Some idols that we have are, are more deeply rooted than, than others. Some are more longer lasting than others, but, but we all have them. And just because we have put an idol away and we have rooted that out of our lives doesn't mean that another idol is not taking seed and beginning to grow in our hearts. Our heart is an idol factory and we continue to manufacture them over and over and over again. And what should we do about these idols? What does, what does Jesus have to say about idols? What does Jesus have to say about idol worship? Well, the church that we're studying this week, Jesus is speaking specifically to them about this. And it's the church at Thyatira. And so verse 18 again. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Like Many of the other letters that Jesus has already written here, it begins with this description of, of who Jesus is. And as we look at the description of who Jesus is, we see first that he is the Son of God. And like many passages in the book of Revelation, this, this takes us back to the Old Testament. I was talking with someone this last week at church, and I can't remember who it was at this point, but but we were talking about the connections that are made back to the Old Testament. And I, I jokingly said, you know, I like to think of Revelation as kind of the Bible's final exam. You know, you have to, you have to know the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, really, really, really well if you want to understand what Revelation is saying. 
You see, we often just, we, we put the Old Testament aside and, and we never read the Old Testament. And then we go and read the book of Revelation and we make up all kinds of fanciful things. But if we truly understand God's word and we truly understand what it has to say, particularly what, what the Old Testament has to say to us, and we have a, a, an understanding of that, then we can come to the book of Revelation and we can understand it, at least to a certain degree. And here we are connected back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God, he, he makes this covenant with, with David. In verses 12 and 4 of that chapter, we learn that, that God will raise up an offspring after David who will, who will come from his own body and God will establish his kingdom. God will also be to him a father and he will be to God a son. And considering the Davidic king and, and the idea of sonship, it, it then also takes us over to Psalms chapter 2. In Psalms chapter 2, we read this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as you read the rest of the psalm, you see that it is about the Davidic king who is the son of God, who is sitting enthroned over all of the nations. He was sitting in judgment of them as they were trying to rage war against them. And God in, in the kingdom of heaven just laughs because he is the one who is the sovereign king over all. Amen. All of this tells us then that, that Jesus is the promised Davidic king who sits enthroned over the world. We also learn that Jesus' feet are burnished or, or highly polished bronze and his eyes are like a blazing fire and that reveals that, that Jesus is, is completely pure. It also reveals that, that, his, that his sight, is, it, he has a searching gaze. Nothing escapes it. He is able to peer even into the darkest nights. And oftentimes, this is, this is where evil acts occur. They, they occur in the darkness. And this is why our mothers would tell us, at least my mom would tell me, you need to be home before the streetlights come on. Or when we, when we walk to our cars in a dark parking lot and no one else is really around, maybe you, you got a gun and and you got it right there. You got your hand on it. Or maybe you got some mace. Or, or maybe you're just running to your car quickly. Because bad things happen. And this is when, when people come out and they, and they try to rob you. And they try to carjack you. Or, or whatever else they want to do. This is why cops who work the night shift most likely have more activity than those who work the day shift. And why is that? Why, why do we commit more evil acts after dark? Well, I believe it's because we think that no one can see us. We believe that we will get away with whatever it is that we are doing, or at least we have a greater chance of getting away with it if we do that underneath the cover of darkness. And sometimes people do get away with it. But Jesus tells us that, that whether it is day or night, whether it is fully bright where you're at or it is absolutely pitch black dark, nothing, absolutely nothing escapes his gaze. He lights up the darkness so that he can clearly see what it is that we are doing. Think about that. Think about that the next time you plan out some sin underneath the cover of darkness and you think nobody else can see me. And while that might be true, while, while your friends and, and your family or your co-workers cannot see what it is that you are doing, that you can hide that from them, you cannot hide that from Jesus. His eyes are a flaming fire. He lights up the darkness, illuminating everything so that he can clearly see what it is that we are doing. 
And this tells us that, that Jesus, his, his judgments are both righteous and warranted because he knows all things and he can see all things. We can't come to Jesus and say, but you didn't see that, Jesus. You didn't see when I was doing this. How can you judge me for that? How can you hold that against me? Jesus sees everything. Amen. And Jesus, his text doesn't go here, but, but Jesus even knows what is in our heart of hearts. He not only sees everything, but he knows the desires of our heart. This further reveals that Jesus is the all-holy, all-seeing, anointed, and righteous king who is worthy of our exclusive worship. Nothing should get in the way of us turning to and bowing down in reverent worship to God, to Jesus. And while Jesus should be the only one that we worship, the church at, at Thyatira was, was experiencing a challenge to, to worshiping Jesus alone. The church at Thyatira was situated in, in this area well known for its commercial activity. Thyatira, it was, it was smaller than, than Pergamum. It was located about 40 miles away from, from Pergamum. But, but unlike Pergamum, it wasn't this religious hotbed where you had all of these temples that just dotted this huge hill like we looked at last week. But, but Thyatira, what they lacked in these religious temples, they made up for merchants and craftsmen. You see, in Thyatira, there were many textile manufacturers and sellers. If, if you remember, if you read through uh, Paul's missionary journeys, you see that outside of, of Philippi, he encounters a lady from Thyatira, Lydia, who is a seller of, of purple cloth. And that's what took place here. There were many people who sold these luxurious cloths and, and, even, and even dyed wools. Along with textile manufacturers and traders, you, you also had those who were craftsmen that were located in Thyatira. And there were many people there who, who made armor for the Roman soldiers. And both those who specialized in textiles and, and armor making were members of their respective guilds. And, and a guild is just simply a, an association of craftsmen or merchants who, who gather together to, to mutually encourage and, and aid one another. It's kind of like a, a modern day union, if you will. If you lived in Thyatira, you were a textile manufacturer, you were a craftsman, you, you wanted to be in one of these guilds. It was almost necessary for you to be in one of these guilds. And on the one hand, that, that was a good thing, right? I mean, they provided you access to, to other people who did the same thing that you did. It allowed you some support. It allowed you maybe even some, some further training. Um, so on the one hand, this was a, a really good thing for people who lived in this city. But on the other hand, guilds posed a huge difficulty for those who had turned and, and began to follow Jesus. Those we might refer to as Christians. In most guilds, they had this this patron god that they collectively worshipped together. And when the guilds gathered, they, they would do so at, at the local temple and, and they would eat food that was sacrificed to idols. This is what they did to, to gather together for their, for their meeting. And then at the end of their meeting, it would, it would almost always di divulge into some sort of debauchery, sexual immorality as a, as a way to actually worship these gods. And so on the one hand, I mean, these guilds are, are pretty beneficial, but on the other hand, if, if you're a Christian, they pose a major problem. At the heart of all of their gatherings, at the heart of the meeting that you're going to go to for your guild is going to be some sort of idol worship and sexual immorality. It's just a given. That's what happened. I mean, imagine going, if you're involved in a union and and that's what you're going to every time you go to a, a union meeting or, or a meeting at, at your work with your, with your team. This is the things that, 
that take place. And so the church at Thyatira, they experienced a daily challenge to their walk with the Lord. But it seems that some of the Christians in Thyatira, they were, they were faithful to Jesus. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And so there were Christians there. They exhibited love. They exhibited faith. They exhibited patient endurance. And Jesus is even commending them because their works, he says, that, that they are doing now is greater than the works that they were doing when they first formed as a church. In other words, they are, there are some Christians in this church who are actually growing in their walk with the Lord. They're growing in their walk with Jesus. But some had lost this daily challenge of of worshiping Jesus alone. And now we got to think about, well, how is that possible? I mean, you've got some people in this church who are growing in their walk with the Lord. Certainly they're influencing those others who are in the church. I mean, the church as a whole is, 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 is growing in Jesus. So how is it possible that some have failed to worship Jesus alone? Well, verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and is seeking and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so some in the church believe that they could participate in these idolatrous worship alongside of Jesus because they were led astray by a false teacher. Jesus refers to this woman as, as Jezebel. And many people uh, believe that, that Jezebel was not actually the, the name of the false teacher here, but this was symbolic. And so again, another connection to the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 16, 31 to 33, we learn that, that King Ahab... He was influenced by a, a foreign woman. And, and she came in and she led him into idol worship. And then King Ahab, who's the king of the nation, then ends up leading the nation to worship idols as well. And in the same way, someone who, who is not a believer, someone has, has come into the church just like Jezebel came into the nation of Israel. Someone has come into the church and they are now leading this church astray. Imagining her argument, one commentator says this, imagine these tempting words. You know the deep things at work here. You know that, that idols are nothing. You know that all things are lawful for you. So go to the feast, eat, drink, and be merry. You have a living to make, don't you? Tempting words to those who have to choose between worshiping Jesus and providing for their own family. Jezebel offers them a third way, a way that allows them to benefit from being a member of the church, to benefit from following Jesus and all that, that Jesus offers them, as well as, as a way for them to benefit from being a part of this guild so that, so that now there's no economic impact. They've got the best of, of both worlds. But the only problem with this is that Jezebel was a false teacher. What she is saying does not align with God's word. It is not true. It is actually unbiblical. And it seems the church knew Jezebel's message was wrong, but they allowed her to continue in the church anyways. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into a great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that, that I am him who searches the mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. 
In these verses, Jesus is is chastising the church for not dealing with the Jezebel figure, the false teachers. It appears that the church has has confronted these false teachers in the past, that they have begun to hold these false teachers accountable. The ones who are following them, they're beginning to call them out of this false teaching, but but they have refused to put her out of the church when she refused to repent and and her followers refused to repent. And so now these people are, are there in the midst of the congregation and they are continuing to have influence over the congregation. And as she stays there longer and longer, she begins to win more and more people to her side, to her false teaching, and is leading more and more of the church astray. Jesus warns us that we must not allow false teachers and idolaters to influence the church. We must watch out for them. We must call them to repentance. And if necessary, we must remove the Jezebels. If we don't, we can expect Jesus' judgment. And that includes the church as a whole. I mean, there were some people in this church who were growing in the faith. But as we talked about last week, the church is a body of believers that is all connected together and we are all responsible for one another. And so here we, we have this church who is, who is unwilling to remove the Jezebel figure who is leading this church into idolatry. You see, Jesus, who sees all and knows all, who judges impurity, has the right to judge since he is the king of the world. He will come and he will sit in judgment against Jezebel, her followers, and the church at large for allowing her to continue in its midst. False teaching which leads to idolatry is never a good thing. The church must deal with it. They must denounce and they must remove false teachers while at the same time they must call others in the congregation out of idolatry to following Jesus alone. A church must discipline and pursue those caught in false teaching and idolatry because as we, as we learn here, idolatry breaks the first two of the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, Jesus, I mean, God says this, you shall have no other gods before me. As believers, we must put away our idols. And they are, they are an affront to God. When we worship an idol, rather than worshiping God, what we are saying to God is that you are not enough for me. I need something else alongside of you or in place of you to provide what I actually need. Because you can't do it, God. You're unable to give me what I need. Now keep in mind who we're saying this to. We're saying this to the God of the universe, to the one who has created us, to the one who sustains us, to the one who provides for us day in and day out. We are saying that to him. He is the one who brought the Israelites out of bondage in in Egypt. He is the one who who sent his son to come and to die for us on the cross so that we might release from from Satan's kingdom, from from bondage of of sin, so that we might be transferred over to to Jesus' kingdom, so that we can actually live how God has designed for us to live, so that we are free from all of these hindrances in our life. He is the the great redeemer of of everyone and everything. He acts in ways even though he shouldn't act in these ways because through and through we are sinners. But God, he is 
He is mindful of us, even though we are rebels who consistently press against him. He continues to, to lavish his mercy and his grace upon us. He saves us, not because we first loved him, but because he first loves us. There's absolutely no reason why God should be mindful of us, but God is mindful of us. He loves us, and because he loves us, it causes him to act in ways that are just unfathomable. This is the God who has done all of this for us that we are saying, you are not enough for me. You have not done enough for me. When we go and we pursue idols. See, when we gaze upon the cross, we should be drawn to Jesus. We should be repulsed by sin and we should have a desire to put away our idols. When we worship idols, we replace the one true God with a counterfeit God. And if you're a believer here today, you should, you should listen to Jesus' words. You shouldn't follow the false teacher or the false prophet that cause you to worship anything or anything else or anything or anyone other than God. Don't listen to the cultural prophets either who, who promise wealth and health and beauty and success. These are false promises that they cannot deliver on. Don't listen to the Jezebels all around that, cause you to, that call you to capitulate to the culture so that you will gain economic prosperity. God alone will provide. He alone has provided and he alone will continue to provide for us. If you sell out to the Jezebels, you can be sure that Jesus will come against you. He will be your judge instead of your savior. You will face his wrath instead of his love. You will experience sickness and tribulation instead of eternal life. Idolatry never pays. It never ends well. Listen to what Jesus says to the church and turn to him today. If you're a true believer, Jesus calls you to hold fast to your belief that he alone is Lord and savior. Look at the beginning of Look at the text beginning in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. As with the nation of Israel, there was a godly remnant, remnant that was left there at, at the church of, of Thyatira, a remnant that did not hold to the teachings of Jezebel, a remnant that, that sought to continually put away their idols. And we have to continually do that because our heart is an idol factory. As a result, we've got to continue to examine ourselves to see if another idol is beginning to be manufactured in our lives. Now, how do we do that? How do we determine our idols. Well, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the sermon, but, but let me pose some questions to you. As I walk through these questions, think about your own life. What are the things that you protect the most? What do you keep behind lock and key at your house? What do you rarely use for fear that it might get messed up? What are the things that you put before godly activity? What takes the place of the Bible reading or, or prayer? What is it that you're willing to do instead of coming to the worship service? What is it that keeps you from times of fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the week? What do you pour the most energy and effort into? Your house or your yard? Fixing up a car? Finding the best deal? Things you create such as art and pictures and books or blogs? What are the things that tug at your mind or emotions? What are you constantly thinking about? What are you planning to do? What do you daydream about the most? 
Where do you turn for comfort when things are not going well? Your work, pornography, food, alcohol, drugs, a truth about yourself. I might not be a great athlete, but at least I'm academically excelling or vice versa. Man, I'm not academically excelling, but I can play some ball. Where do you turn for comfort? What triggers depression in you? Your kids not calling, the struggles in your marriage, not getting the recognition that you deserve, how little you think you have accomplished in your life and you think you should have done so much more. Answering these questions honestly can, can begin to point you towards those things that might be an idol in your life. It could point you towards those things that, that you're beginning to manufacture as idols in your life. As you notice that not all of these things are bad. Not all of these things are, are sinful. But we can even make those things that are good idols because we elevate them above God. Those who are true believers work to understand their idols. They work to, to put those idols away so that they might worship Jesus alone. And this is a constant, constant process. Just because we get rid of one idol doesn't mean that we don't have another one. Doesn't mean that there's not a deeper idol below that idol that is really our idol that is just presenting in this other way. We are good at making idols and we're good at hiding that from ourselves. And so we have to constantly be asking ourselves questions like these. And those who do put away their idols, who denounce false teachers and seek to worship Jesus alone, Jesus says here, I, I, don't, I don't impose anything else on you. That's what I want you to do. I don't want you to go and do anything else. And, and Jesus' statement refers back to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. You know, Paul and Barnabas, they were there in, in Antioch and they were, they were confronted by some Jews who, who, who when they come to the Gentiles, they say, no, no, you must. You must do some other things in order to be saved. You must be circumcised. Yeah, believe in Jesus, but, but you've got to do this physical act as well. And, and Paul, he doesn't agree with them. And he gets in this tussle with them and this fight. And, and so he says, I'm going to go to the Jerusalem church, which is kind of where everything sprung from there in, in Acts. And I'm going to ask the elders there. I'm going to ask the apostles there. Do they agree with me? Do they see in Scripture what I see? And he goes and he has this meeting with them and they, and they say the same thing. And the only thing that they asked was that the people there, the Gentiles, would abstain from food offered to idols and from sexual immorality. In other words, that they would abstain from idol worship. And Jesus affirms that stance here. He's not asking the church to do more, <clears throat> but just to worship him alone. To abstain from, from worshiping idols, to abstain from, from, from pressing into that. If they do that, Jesus says, they will conquer. And those who conquer will receive several things from Jesus. And so, verse 26, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus tells us the one who conquers is going to be given authority. Jesus has the right to reign and to rule, and in some way, in Jesus' future kingdom, we are going to reign and rule alongside Jesus. He also tells us that those who conquer will be given the morning star. And for, for the Romans here, the morning star was a symbol of, of victory. Bringing these two ideas together, we learn that those who remain steadfast, 
who seek to guard the church against false teachers and their own heart against idolatry will gain access to Jesus' eternal kingdom where they will serve alongside Jesus in some unknown capacity, but a glorious capacity for all of eternity. The one who has ears to hear, Jesus says, hear what he's saying to these churches. Hold fast to his word. Put away idols and you will conquer. Church, we must heed Jesus' words. We cannot allow ourselves and one another to be captured by false teachers. We cannot uh, continue to pursue idols. We must always be on the lookout seeking to destroy idols and strongholds in our life. The way we deal with idols is by focusing on Jesus, what he has done for us, how Jesus has has given his life for us. Whether you are a believer or a non-believer here today, that is how you are freed from idolatry. That is how you can experience eternal life. That is how you can be sure that you will conquer to the end by turning to Jesus every single day, knowing that he alone is the one who has paid the price for you, that he has died for you. And as you continue to meditate on the gospel, as you continue to meditate on what Jesus has done, may the value of him grow more and more in your life than anything that this world could ever offer you. Because Jesus's promises will come true. As you read through the remainder of Revelation, you see that Jesus will come back. Jesus will conquer. No idol is going to come back. No idol is going to conquer like Jesus can conquer. And so if we want to experience true life, everlasting life, then we have to turn to Jesus. He is the only one who can meet our deepest needs. He is the only one who can ultimately satisfy us and provide us with salvation. And so if you haven't turned to Jesus, then today is the day for you to turn to Jesus. Today is the day for you to to repent of your sins, to put away your idols, and to begin worshiping Jesus alone. And if you are a believer, then you need to do the same. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. You need to seek Jesus. You need to allow yourself to be captivated by Jesus and Jesus alone. That's how we get rid of idols, by turning to Jesus and Jesus alone. And whether we're a believer or a non-believer, that's what we need to do. And so seek Jesus today. Turn to Jesus today and trust in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you this morning. We're thankful for your word, thankful for the message that it provides for us, thankful for the hope that we have in Jesus. And God, we ask that that would be what we turn to in our deepest times of need, in the everyday, that we would turn to Jesus. And Lord, if there's someone here who does not believe in Jesus, who hasn't turned to Jesus, who hasn't given their life to Jesus, or somebody who is just trying to to have the world in Jesus, Lord, we ask that you might convict them this morning, that they might see that that is not going to satisfy them, that only you alone can satisfy them and provide them with salvation, that you might draw them to yourself so that they will experience true and everlasting salvation this morning. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.